Hello, everyone, and welcome to Modern Musicology. This is the week of December 12th, and we have a lot of stuff to talk about. My name is Alan, and let me introduce to you my co-host, Rob. Hello, how are you? And Anthony. Good evening. We had planned on talking about a Rolling Stone list of the 80 best albums from 1980 that Rob sent to me. Uh, it's a list from last year. Um, Rob sent it to me, and it looked like this would make a good discussion. And then we had a whole series of important people passing away within the past few days. So we are going to talk about that, both of those things. But before that, let's talk about any news or new releases or anything that we've seen or done this past week. Rob, what do you have? Uh, a couple things. TCM uh, has produced their own... Uh, Dean Martin documentary called King of Cool. And I am not necessarily a person who was really up to speed on, you know, Dean Martin. Um, I mean, I was familiar with the Rat Pack and his movies and things, but um, it's really interesting in, in that documentary, not just about his life and his film career and things, but the dynamic within the Rat Pack and the dynamic of uh, him as a recording artist, which I thought was really, really fascinating in terms of like, um, there's two or three years there when he was big. He had better years than Sinatra, which I was not aware yeah. of. And it was, that was really interesting. And then um, the new beach house record does not come out till next year, but they've already dropped eight tracks from it. They're doing it in chunks. Now this is the new thing. Bands are going to release four right. songs a week. And I know. it's, it's going to be the record that puts them up there. It's really, really good. So um, if they've already released eight singles, I mean, what is there like 54 songs on the album? I mean, uh, there's that's 18. Like, that's like, holy crap. That's like an entire eight tracks is an entire album for some artists. Yeah, there's 18 songs, the double record. And okay. then there's like 500 different versions of it you can buy. Um, of course. But there's 18 tracks on it and they're not going to release all of them. But, I, you yeah. know, they're doing for, you know, just to kind of build the hype up. Yeah. And, um, it's the closest thing I've heard. You know, it kind of sounds like a Cocteau Twins record, but it also kind of mm. sounds like a Mazzy Star record at the same time. That's cool. And um, I think it's gonna, I think it's gonna make them pretty big. That's awesome. Last night, uh, this is December twelfth, as I said. Last night on Saturday Night Live, Billie Eilish performed and hosted. Um, and I gotta say, I have not been on the Billie Eilish bandwagon at all don't really care for her she blew me away last night her hosting was okay like she was really upbeat and really playful and fun and silly and lighthearted. and i and i really enjoyed uh, that she came across as a tiny bit amateurish like she couldn't you know do a skit and not laugh like she could not get some lines out because she would just giggle or whatever but her performances floored me like I was completely surprised. And so I have listened to the new album when it first came out and I was like, eh, you know, whatever. I am going to listen to it again now with a brand new set of ears and really give it a shot. And like, I, I'm really interested now in seeing where she's going from here. Like I'm really looking, I'm, I, I might already be a convert. I'm not, I'm, I'm shocked to say it, but I think I might be. I thought from a conceptual standpoint, it was really cool how they shot it because it's in, it's in a closed room. And I'm like, what? Is she like sequestered somewhere? Is she, you know, yeah. And then it opens up and it's, it's facing the other way that they normally do. Yeah. And I thought that was really cool. And then they did the, the sort of rotary go around circle camera. Yeah, which I don't remember. So I don't remember seeing a lot of camera work like that for artists on SNL. And I thought that was really cool. Mm -hmm. um, her voice when she sings live to me is different than on record, which, mm -hmm. which it is for all most performers. But I like, I like her voice there more than I liked it on the record. I'm like, you, the record didn't really move me and I'm going to go back to it. Yeah. But, um, and you know, the, the hosting part, I kind of expect to a certain extent when they have a musical artist for them to be a little out of, out of their element doing skits and things. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, it was not a train wreck. So I'm okay with that. No, it wasn't um, at all. And, and it was nice that she kind of set it up in the monologue when she was talking about her past as an actor and, you know, made the little joke about being cut out of the family film. So yeah. I, I thought I thought the whole thing worked really nicely. And I think, you know, 
um, I had always thought she was kind of aloof and kind of up there. Right. Know? And she came re- came off as kind of being really down to earth. Yeah. And I, th- I think the other thing I don't ever remember is I never remember an artist's parents introducing them. <laughs> right. Before. That and was, I thought that was really clever. That was really sweet. And I just, uh, I was just impressed with the whole performance. I mean, yeah. I still may not hate the, I still may not like the record, but I right. at least, well, I, at least, you know, a performance from an artist you don't expect it to be is really great. Exactly. Especially on SNL when sometimes the musical artists are better than like half the show. Right. Um, yeah, I thought it was really, really cool. And it's, it's interesting. I don't know if she's still, even if I like the record, I still don't know if the hype, if it's as big as the hype. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think, I think she's in an interesting spot because, you know, she's not Lady Gaga. She's not Adele. Um, where do they put her? I don't think she's easy for people to categorize, really, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, we like to, in America, put everything in boxes. And I think that she's finally getting comfortable with that and just sort of doing her own thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think what's interesting with her is hearing how her sound has evolved between the two albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she very much kind of lent into that mumble thing that's popular right now with the first album right and she's moved on from that i think and honestly she she's got a little way to go but i think she could follow a similar career trajectory to someone like lord Mm -hmm. yeah well i will say that from the first album to the the most recent album lord has kind of fallen off my radar yeah, I didn't think that the, the this current album was nearly as interesting. I like the lead, the lead track from it, but otherwise, I'd agree with you. Um, <laughs> I thought the lead track from it was fantastic. So look yeah. how uh, yeah, uh, it felt very positive and summery, and which doesn't fit but... Lord to me. I don't know. It just seemed weird. <laughs> Not that it's evolving. a bad thing. Not that it's a bad thing. I, I've been very excited to hear that the Darkness have announced a U.S. tour for next summer or next. Oh, is that guess, right? Spring. Oh, yeah. Wow. So they're going to be coming through in uh, basically March through to the end of April. It's a big tour, um, hitting up California, you know, the West Coast, and they're up in Canada for a bit. Then they're up north. They come down south. They are playing the Atlanta show, which I'm excited mm. about because. Some bands decide they don't want to come see us. Um, but they're going to be playing at uh, the Masquerade. And oh, nice. I'm pretty excited. I, I saw The Darkness for the first time. I want to say it was 2002 before mm-hmm. they got big. Mm-hmm. And they were the support act for Def Leppard on their X tour. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And, you know, seeing Justin Hawkins in his bright pink cat suit riding on the back on a roadie's back through the audience i in that crowd i was like yeah these guys are gonna be big and they were <laughs> big and then he got way hooked on cocaine went to rehab they split up he called his brother the c word in an interview you know all that kind of thing before they decided to reunite and you know i, I think now they've got a more manageable level of success uh, right Right. rather than the crazy stardom they had around 2003 2004 but i think that'll be an interesting show you know it's again mm-hmm. i'm i'm very excited to see how much they've evolved over the last 20 years is he still yeah. wearing cat suit right, exactly and if that same roadie is still working for him <laughs> his back probably gave out by now exactly <laughs> uh, i've got one last thing that i want to get in and that is uh the the fifth of the series of Bowie box sets, the career retrospective box sets has been released this past week. And um, the first three basically covered the seventies. The last one, which was two years ago, covered the eighties. And this one is um, essentially the whole of the nineties. And I I, got to say, I I love seventies Bowie. I love eighties Bowie, but I really love nineties Bowie. Like, I just think that's, you know, one of the most exciting periods that Bowie had. It, I find it to be as creative, as adventurous, as cutting edge as his 70s stuff, but in totally different and new ways. And so this box set has just got my name written all over it. 
the remasterings of the studio albums is really, really nice. Um, it also includes the, from 2000, it includes the, um, the live album that was released a while back, which was sort of like a precursor to his Glastonbury performance. Um, except that the original release was uh, trimmed down a bit. And this is essentially the whole concert. There's some, you know, uh, between song banter that isn't included. Uh, but all the songs are there. And there's like five or six songs that were not in the original release, which I'm happy to have now. And then it also incl includes the album that he recorded that never got released called Toy, which is mostly a reworking of some of his 60s songs in sort of a modern setting with his at the time current band uh, with a couple of other new songs like there's one new song called hole in the ground which i absolutely love i i'd kind of heard that as a like a little bootleg thing a while back so it's not new for me but having it all in one place and remastered is really really nice yeah i've dipped in and out of it a little bit i took a quick listen through toy but really what i was excited about at least on a first listen, was just hearing the remastering on some of my favorites, whether it's Hello Space Boy, I'm Afraid of Americans, yeah. Little Wonder, like hearing yeah. a slightly refreshed and uh, sharpened sound on it. And I thought, yeah, I was not, I was not disappointed. And I, I frequently will list Outside as my absolute number one, above all other things, favorite Bowie album. So hearing that in a new pristine release is so exciting for me yeah. speaking of bowie yeah did you see the um the second a uh, second annual uh, bowie celebration was announced yes i sure did so looks yeah. like def leppard simon Le Bon, mm -hmm. uh living color rob thomas gary is Oldman, it, walk the moon is it not all of duran i just or is it just oh, simon it's, it's simon and john Oh, okay. Out John Taylor, but it's not all of them. It's just it's just that duo. Okay. Um, okay. And they're going to be focusing on Labyrinth because it's the 35th anniversary of that. Very as well nice. As, very nice. Yeah. So it should be good. I think it's going out on January 8th. It is. is yes. When it's being 8th. streamed. So. Mm -hmm. So I haven't really looked at the details. Is this a live show that they're streaming, or is it like last year's one where it was like cobbled together video of different things that's what i have not been yeah. able to i've not really seen discern. anything too definitive yeah. i think it's a streamed thing but i think that it may be like a paper stream where it's, yeah you know you buy it and you're like 72 hours to watch it or something no i mean it's, it is, it's it, 24 hours i think oh wow yeah okay. last year yeah. the one they did last year was 48 hours this one i've, I've yeah. seen is only 24 and that's crazy yeah, yeah, it's definitely streamed. It's just the question of whether or not it's going to be, you know, an actual live performance or lots right. of individual little things they've kind of cobbled mm -hmm. together. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think what I, the point being is, I think, I think it's going to be streamed live. I think that's what I think they were going for, yeah. what I've heard. But um, I think I'm with you, Alan, on the on the box set, in that for me, it's like this has been around as a bootleg for so long. The hearing right. it's shiny and pretty and great, but also to the track order, I, I think is is really great, um, mm -hmm. in that it shows that somebody really went through and thought about what's the way to do this. You know, mm -hmm. the remixes are kind of at the back end of things, uh, so they don't interrupt the flow and the pace of it. They really made it a point to have it flow and pace well. And you know, the other thing is these box sets, the the artwork and the packaging is just amazing. It is spectacular. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. All right. So uh, we are going to jump into our main topic, which is Rolling Stone's list of the 80 best albums from 1980. This is an interesting list. And particularly for me, because 1980 is like a key year for me. This is sort of like the year of my musical awakening. This is our, it's kind of like, you know, I was in like my... I think my early year of high school or whatever. And this is the year where I kind of transformed from being just a kid who listened to the radio to being somebody who collected albums and who followed careers and who read liner notes and started to take my love of music much more seriously. And I discovered a whole slew of things that year, like the whole world of music opened up to me 
in a way that there's a lot of things that I love now that all originated for me in 1980. And so what did you guys think of this list when you took a look at it? It was interesting to look through it. I mean, there's a lot that there are some absolutely classic albums on there and some that I discovered, you know, 20 years later when I was kind of differentiating myself from my parents and my own musical tastes. Mm -hmm. But then there are some things where I, I look at the placing and granted it's Rolling Stone and it's by its very nature <laughs> meant to be a bit more of a broad take on music than my somewhat narrow opinion um but there are some things where i i looked and think wow i would not have placed that at you know so high up yeah um you know the example i would give is acdc's back in black i mean i don't <laughs> think i i get that it's a classic album but i don't as a heavy metal and hard rock fan i don't think something like that should have been in fourth when you have some genuinely groundbreaking hard rock and metal releases from that year, whether it's Heaven and Hell, um, mm -hmm. Iron Maiden's eponymous album, or yep. British Steel, which I think do far more interesting things than Back in Black, because ACDC are very kind of one mm -hmm. note. I, I agree um, with you completely on that. Um, I do think that Back in Black is a superb album and a solid record, and it's about as perfect an album as, as ACDC could get. But... I agree with you on all the other ones that you mentioned. And, you know, they all came out the same month. Yeah. They all came out in mm -hmm. April with Priest and Iron Maiden on the same day. Yeah. Crazy. So uh, that was uh, like, that was the heavy metal month. <laughs> yeah. And and again, I think Back in Black is a solid album. It just, yeah. I don't think it deserves to be fourth and the highest hard rock or heavy metal release on the list. Agreed. Agreed. And I think, you know, when you do a list like this, you weigh commercial success versus artistic, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I, I, I'm pretty much in the camp that it's a one note record, but at the same time you hear it everywhere. And I'm mm -hmm. wondering, I'm trying to look at this from their mindset, if that's why they're placing it there, because it's just a record that you still hear everywhere. You see, you know, you, you think of ACDC, you think of that record, even if you don't know anything else about ACDC. So that has to be why they placed it so high. I, I just thought and, that was really interesting. And Rob, this is why you are a professional music broadcaster and I'm just some asshole with an opinion. <laughs> I, first of all, not a professional, not a professional uh. Two, I, and I don't not, not having the metal uh, chops that you have. I, even I think it was too high. I'm like, cause I looked at the, I, I saw them. I saw the, the maiden and the priest. I'm like, I don't know. You know, um, that was one of the things I'm glad you brought up because I was going to ask it. Um, I mean, I just know, like, come in the Midwest, for example, you will hear Journey, Ario Speedwagon, and ACDC everywhere, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think it feeds that sort of mentality to it, right? Whereas those records don't necessarily do that. But I don't think that should be a criteria if you're looking at it. Yeah. Um, and that's my my issue is sort of where they have the, their, what are they using? to base this on and why, why? Yeah. I just, it's just, it, it seemed oddly placed. I mean, I would put it maybe in the top 20, but I don't know if I'd put it in the top five. Right. Um, I mean, I, I get it like, okay, this is a popular record. You think of it, you put it on there. Boom. I get it. Right. Um, same thing with London calling. It's like, um, okay. Some would argue there's a, there's a, there's a huge fight between clash fans, whether it's Anthony or London calling, mm -hmm. or, you know? Right. Um, so I get that. It's kind of the same thing, but it's like, how are you weighing these? But um, at, the, at the same time though, I think that putting London calling in the number one spot I have is, no like, problem with that. It, it is the most Rolling Stone thing to ever have happened. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Like they, like you would never think of anything else that they would put there. Yeah. But I was most surprised really by uh, Talking Heads Remain in Light at number two. Yeah, that was a bold move. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's the record that kind of really put them on the map and really sort of changed a lot in terms of getting that New York sound of that time mm -hmm. out there. I mean, yeah. you know, that yeah. B-52's record's on the list too, but that B-52 record picked up some momentum on the legs of that Talking Heads record. You know, oh, definitely. You know, so, so that's part of it. It also is probably out of the records of Talking Heads up to 1980, mm -hmm. really well produced. And it also mm -hmm. combines, I mean, 77 does this too, but it combines a lot of different different styles 
in a really interesting way. But I would argue that Bowie had done that earlier. But Talking Heads just sort of done it, had done it sort of in a way I thought was kind of characteristically interesting. I, I would have thought Rolling Stone being Rolling Stone would have put the river into. Um, so I was kind of surprised to see the Talking Heads there. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, followed immediately at number three by Prince, Dirty Mind. Um, I, I'm not surprised at all that they put it very that high on the list, but I'm surprised that it was all the way to number three. Um, it wasn't the commercial success that his later stuff became, oh. but uh, a hugely important album for Prince. And I think, too, that that record, in the same way that Remain in Light kind of had this, too, the longer you get away from that record, the more yeah. people appreciate it. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, you true. know, and I hate to say this because it's it's horrible, but I think when Prince passed, that's the record people sort of went back and rediscovered more mm. than a lot of the other records in his catalog. Because um, mm. it's a much better record than people give it credit for. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, the one that the one that surprised me, and it's not necessarily a negative thing, is when they put Donna Summer the Wanderer on there. Because I completely, yeah. I I completely forget that record in this year, that the, that it's this year, right? But the production on that, it's yeah. a step above disco, but it's also <laughs> soul. I mean, it's the Chic mm -hmm. record and that record both do a lot of the same things. And I just thought, mm -hmm. you know, when I saw this, I'm like, what a great year for like soul and black music, right? Um, the thing that I forget about that Donna Summer album was that uh, I think it was the title song was a top 10 hit. And I don't think I ever heard that played on the radio I didn't in my either. area. I didn't so it, it, if I think about Donna Summer, I never even think about that album, much less that song. Same so, thing the Diana Ross record. I never think of it either. That di but Diana Ross record was enormous. I know, but I completely, I mean, yeah, I completely sort of, oh yeah, that, you know. <laughs> of course that came out that year exactly speaking, speaking of that um particular album and the entry in the list i had no idea that she was dating gene simmons at the time what mm -hmm. that just yeah seems, baby that's <laughs> i i had no idea that was ever a thing and that was just oh man there blowing. were there were pictures all over the press of the two of them out on the town where Gene Simmons is wearing a bandana around his face so that you can't see his, you know, secret identity and all this nonsense. It was hilarious. That's hilarious. And there's there's actually a, a I don't know how true this is. There's a story that uh, Gene brought Diana home to meet his mother. And she was so excited to meet a big superstar. And she made a banner that says something like, welcome to our home, Diana Summer. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so take that for what it's worth. Um, I thought X, Los yes. Angeles at number six, that was a surprising one too. That record is a huge record in not only punk, but also the LA yeah. scene and also sort of laying groundwork for a lot of the alternative stuff coming 10 years later. Um, Cause there wouldn't be a Pixies without an X. Yeah. There wouldn't, right. I mean, there's a lot of these bands, there wouldn't be a Nirvana without an X. Right. And people often forget about the tandem of John Doe and Exene Cervenka as songwriters together. Mm -hmm. um, but that record is really good. It's really raw. It's got a, um, visceral feel to it that a lot of the records in that year don't have um in the same way that the pil record is like experimental and strange mm -hmm. and different that record yeah. is raw and rough so yeah, i that, was gonna i was gonna mention the pil one as well there's a couple of things that kind of surprised me as far as like you know i lived in the central florida it wasn't a terribly musically progressive area i had one top 40 station from Tampa, Florida, that that was my exposure to music. So a lot of things that I was really kind of tuning into in 1980, a lot of the things that I've, you know, kind of hooked onto then and still love now are not on the list. And the ones that are, are, you know, kind of on the bottom half of the list, which is fine. You know, like uh, Duke by Genesis, mm -hmm. Crimes of Passion by Pat Benatar, you know, those are my kind of things. But there was this other station uh, it was an album rock station called Zeta 7, and it is legendary 
in Central Florida. And it only was around for maybe 10 years. But people still, to this day, have Zeta 7 license plates on their car. This station was incredible. And I remember hearing there's um, they would do on uh, Monday night. So albums would come out on Tuesdays. Uh, they On Monday night, the, at midnight, they would play whatever the next day's big release was in its entirety, the whole thing. And I would sit there with my tape recorder and record the things. And so um, Empty Glass by Pete Townsend is one of the ones that I discovered from listening to Zeta 7 and loved it. Permanent Waves by Rush. I mean, I had been introduced to Rush before, but hearing Permanent Waves is what solidified my passion for Rush. And it's all because of Zeta 7 and playing all these things in their entirety at midnight. I mean, honestly, I was surprised to see any prog on this list at all because I mm. think 1980 prog was so desperately uncool. Um, that I is know the truth. That you is and true. I, you and I love it, Alan. But you know, seeing Permanent Waves and Duke on there, I was like, okay. I mean, they were never going to put Drama by Yes on that list, were they? Let's be honest. Much as I love that album, yeah. um, You know, it's it's not going to be. In Rolling Stone's top 80 albums of 1980. Right. Uh, one thing I did want to touch on going back to Rob's comment on public image. Mm. And I think this is what to me makes London Calling a little bit of an odd choice for number one is you, you look at the way the scene was moving in 1980 and punk was basically over. You, you're seeing right. more post punk. So you look through that list and you've got Talking Heads, you've got Bauhaus, you've got Joy Division and a few others. So it just feels weird to me that they are a little bit hung up on what's ostensibly one of the last holdouts from the punk era. It well, doesn't feel yeah. right for the time that that should be top of this list. Well, there's a there's a couple things. Um, one, I was thrilled to see getting into the post-punk thing. Uh, thrilled to see Young Marble Giants on there. Because that record really set the table for a lot of the uh, post-punk and C86 stuff that was coming later. And uh, a lot of the twee even that you see later on. Um, I'm happy to see the jam on there as well, because I think that's entertainment. I think sound effects is almost just as good as, in many ways, as London Calling. But you see in 1980, like the jam and the clash sort of both moving away from punk a little bit and putting more, you know reggae or soul or whatever their influences mm -hmm. are into their record and i think probably part of the reason why london calling is liked so much is that it's got the energy of punk but it's not always a punk record yeah um, yeah that's fair and i think but i think where it gets weird is that you can't you can't call it a punk record but i don't think you can call it a rock record it's just kind of this record that's really in between uh in the same way that remain and remain in light is there's a lot of albums that are kind of in between places here like the bowie record and i think you know, talking heads, they're, they're kind of yeah. artists are in different careers. And I think, you know, while I certainly do think that London Calling gets a little more um, praise than it needs to, I think that, you know, London Calling is nowhere as daring as the PIL record for 1980. Right. right. But I think that, like, um, you listen to that PIL, PIL record and you listen to, like, Young Marble Giants and, and, and the Joy Division Closer record, which is like in my you know favorite wheelhouse of records, or even that first <laughs> that first Cure record, um, mm -hmm. uh, and the Soft Boys. I mean, Soft Boys is a little more punk in many ways than the Clash for in 1980. But um, and I think you have Mission of Burma that year. But anyway, um, I think that you have a lot of moving parts. I think that both in the America and Britain, the scenes are going in lots of different directions. Yeah. You know? I think, like Anthony said, punk is on its last legs, and not everyone's mm -hmm. ready to admit that. You still have, um, you know, you've, you're just getting OMD, you're just getting soft cell and Depeche Mode and all that, and then you've still got metal. And in America, you have this, like, soul, prog, and rock thing, and we don't know what to do with the punk in the new wave. Well, it's interesting. 1980 is such a hugely transitional year, not only for, like, large music scenes, but, like, within... Yeah. It, within each genre, things are changing so yeah. rapidly. And Anthony, you mentioned seeing prog bands on this list. The ones that are listed here are the ones who are moving away from traditional prog. Yeah. 
Yeah. You have Permanent Waves, which has certainly moments of traditional prog on it, but is also a hugely commercial album, you know, with songs yeah. like Free Will and Spirit of Radio. And when you're yeah. talking about Duke, you know, there's not a whole lot of, you know, the, the Gabriel era Genesis still left in that band, even though I love Duke. Yeah, I, but they, uh, th th there are still hints of it. I yeah, mean, they haven't quite gone yes. where they're going to go with... Um, Illegal alien and <laughs> yeah, but, crap you know, like it, that. Even turn it on again, which was yeah. ostensibly the big hit, had um, multiple time signatures across. Exactly, it. exactly. Uh, which is very weird for a pop track. I think it's six four, then it's seven four, mm -hmm. then it's in four four, four and five four. Yeah. And, it's, and it, yeah, it's it's really crazy. It's all over the place. I thought it was yeah. all over the place too. I'm glad I was right. Yeah. The other thing too is interesting about this is that a lot of the records you know particularly the cure the Susie, and uh mm. the joy division they're these like sort of post-punk records that suddenly become goth records you know Bauhaus they're not, as well Bauhaus, yeah. yeah they're not necessarily they're they're, they're more post-punk than goth but all of a sudden they're like they're goth right and i think that's kind of interesting as well you know um well, i i think that feeds into your point that you already made there rob because punk is basically coming to an end we've got this, and everybody's yeah we've got this thing that's nebulously referred to as post-punk at the time because they're all coming out out of the same scene but they're all kind of spidering in different directions and yeah. 1980 they're still close enough where you can just about tie them into the same genre yeah but i mean even you look at police who I always yeah. thought their early stuff had a real punk energy. Mm -hmm. um, Definitely. But, you know, after 1980, it feels like these different movements that all originated in punk start going in radically different directions and you start getting different styles. But at this time, those bands are all in kind of one kind of harmonious scene with mm -hmm. doing some interesting things. Mm. And yet you can tie them all to Bowie. Of course. <laughs> Well, no, as no, you know from me, because that I'm generation is as absorbed yeah. enough David Bowie that that sound is moved up. Bowie and T Rex, that sound is sort of mm -hmm. grinding into different. It's you know the other record too, um, and I, I'm, I'm going to take this into into a very odd place, and I'm sorry. That Black Uhuru record, uh, in terms of being a groundbreaking reggae record, yeah, that's like when I worked at a store. Um, the, the record store I worked at, you know, I was like, I took a crash course in learning reggae as much as I could because we sold a ton of it. Right. And the guy, my, the guy who I uh, worked with, who was always listening to a ton of reggae, it's like, this is pretty much where you start with, you know, outside of Marley, go to this record. And mm. um, it's really, really interesting because uh, the production on it's great. The track order is great. It's got a flow to it. It's got a pace to it that a lot of other reggae records at the time didn't. Um, and I thought that was interesting. And I'm glad that they put that on there because it, it's an interesting way to move that around. Speaking of Bowie, though, I think what you're talking about is what makes Scary Monsters so interesting mm -hmm. is that this is really the first time that and he acknowledges it on the record. This is the really the first time that Bowie is on the charts competing with the people that he inspired to start bands and to go into music and to make records and to then have hits. And, you know, I think that's it's, it's a very interesting shift for Bowie and his perspective. And he, from this point, moves into a very different way into the 80s. After Scary Monsters, you know, his 80s is a very, very different thing for him than everything he did earlier than that. Yeah, I agree with that. And Alan, I, th I think you raised an interesting point. I mean, I I've noticed before, I think it generally takes about 10 years for an artist to start being named as an inspiration to the yeah. next generation. <laughs> and 1980, I mean, Bowie was technically late 60s when Space Oddity, I think that was 68 or 69. 69, but yeah. This, this is, you know, about the right time where these bands are coming through. And mm -hmm. they cite Bowie, they cite Roxy Music, and as Rob said, T-Rex. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, And there's a Roxy record this year, too. Not necessarily a great one. Yeah. But there's still a Roxy record. It's not my favorite. That one is not one of my favorites. The 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 other thing of interest from like the the whole kind of Genesis path is Peter Gabriel puts out a record. Yes, which tangentially has 
Kate Bush guesting on Games Without Frontiers and Kate mm-hmm. Bush put out a record mm-hmm. yeah, as well, both of which make it onto the Rolling Stone list. And I mean, those two, I, I always think of Kate Bush as kind of the closest we have to a female equivalent of Peter Gabriel. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the two of them becoming absolute tours de force and, and, you know, really at the height of their careers at this point in time, I think. Yeah. I also find it interesting that you have this big transition in Black Sabbath where we talked about Heaven and Hell earlier, but this is where uh, Ozzy has split the band, whether he quit or got fired. You know, um, they hire a new singer, which completely changes their sound. Ozzy goes off and starts a solo career with a young, hotshot guitar player that completely changes his direction, too. And I find those two albums so fascinating to listen to in that context, like, you know, as they compete with each other. I thought it was interesting on the Rolling Stone list how Ozzy was higher than Sabbath. That's certainly yeah. not, I mean, not just in terms of his levels of intoxication, but actually on the list as well. Um, <laughs> but I, I would personally put it the other way around. I, I think mm-hmm. Heaven and Hell... I mean, you're listening to a band that's been revitalized by this new energy that's come in. I mean, you, you listen to Never Say Die and then Heaven and Hell back to back. And, you know, you're listening to an album that with Never Say Die that sounds like a band that is running out of steam. And that's not what you hear with Heaven and Hell in any way, shape or form. Right. For me, yes, Randy Rhodes was a hotshot guitarist, but I don't think. That album has some good songs, but I don't think it's doing anything unique or special. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, Crazy Train, yeah, that's always going to be a a jam <laughs> for us metalheads. But right. Yeah. I think the Sabbath record, though, to to your point, has it, it feel it feels to me like it has a soul. I I know it's a metal record, but if that sounds, it's a kind of weird way to to put it. It just it's got a heart to it that I don't think you hear in the Aussie record. You know, I think the Aussie record's kind of like, in many ways, going through the motions of like, well, this is the formula for what a good metal record sounds like. Whereas I think the the Sabbath record sort of stands on its own as just a rock record almost. Yeah, um, not just I... necessarily. And I, I'm hoping I'm making sense here, but mm-hmm. um, you are. It just seemed the the Aussie record to me uh, just seems much more formalized. But I'm looking at it from from hindsight rather than the present time. Um, but it seems like this is A to B to C to D. And you probably at this point have to have a formula for Ozzy to stand him up and to the point, of, you know. Um, but the, the thing that I thought was really interesting about the Sabbath record is outside of its heart and its soul is it looks like they, and Alan, I think you touched upon this a little, it looks like they sat down and like, okay, this is what we want to do. This is where we're going. It looks like it's got a plan. Mm. Right. It looks like like this is our arc. I hate to use that example. This is the arc from what this record and everything forward is going to be. Whereas the Aussie record just seems like a moment. Um, I hope that makes sense. Yes, it does. Okay. If you listen to that Sabbath album, you are listening to a band. You know, they've brought in one hell of a singer who can write, which is something that Aussie wasn't particularly good at. You've got Tony Iommi's innovative guitar work. Um, Giza Butler's bass is thundering through that album mm-hmm. and Bill Ward's drumming, it has always been something special with its jazz influences. Ozzy is a solo artist at this point who, yes, has a good backing band behind him, but he's been marketing, being marketed as Ozzy Osbourne. Mm-hmm. And candidly, he's not a great singer. <laughs> he's not a great lyricist when he even contributes lyrics when it wasn't Bob Daisley doing it for him. Right. Um, you know, I, I just he's the the focal point, but he's not the mastermind behind it. And I think to your point, Rob, it kind of lacks soul because of that. Yeah, I, I, was, I know it's a weird analogy to use for that type of record, but it just to me felt very heartfelt and like mm-hmm. they had a passion for what they were doing. Is there anything on the list that you know zero about? Because I've got a couple. One of them is a band called Swell Maps. I've oh my god! Never, I've never heard of that. I've never heard of it. Oh, but they—I've never heard of it. But they have an album. But the one that's on this list is called "Jane from Occupied Europe," and that title fascinates me so. Also, much. a band that now. I that now I have to I have to find out what that album's all about. And there's also a band called "Jane from Occupied Europe" later. Interesting. 
Yeah. No, the swell maps and Nikki Sudden alone. I mean, Nikki Sudden is sort of this figure that on this side of the pond is just like really just sort of like whatever. But over there, he's like an amazing songwriter and who went too soon. And the swell maps just had this whole energy thing. You know, the Swell Maps and Wire and, you know, some of those bands sort of are more post-punk in many ways than bands that get called post-punk. But, yeah, the Swell Maps are just sort of all over the place later on in their career. And they're just, they're fascinatingly great. And they're a huge influence on, like, Nick Cave and a lot of other people down the road later. Cool. There was, um, I'm trying to find it in the list right now. There was a country singer in there that I knew nothing about. But... I don't listen to any country at all, so Dolly that's no Parton. big surprise. And there's, <laughs> uh, I mean, I like the occasional Dolly Parton song, but I, you know, I can't say that I know anything right like uh, any of her deep cuts. No, there was there was some dude. It wasn't Dolly. I I know who she is, but there was right. some guy who I didn't know. The only one I remember and being the, on the list is George Jones. That but might surely... have been it. Okay. I literally have no idea who he is. And then there's at least one where I wish I didn't know who they were, and that's U2. Yes. I just can't stand them. And that's what? So, yeah. U2. Oh, thank I, you. I just can't. I can't stand them. I don't, I don't think that record is really particularly, other than it's known for being their first one, I don't think it's particularly great. I mean, I think the Electric Co. is a much better track than um, some of the other, some of the I Will Follow, but... Mm. You know the the the, the only time I, I when I hear I will follow I always think of like the last American Virgin or um, other mo like I think of soundtracks that's in more than I think of the record, but it, I don't think it's particularly memorable in any way, shape, or form. There's one last point that I want to bring up, and I, I meant to mention this earlier, and it kind of slipped by me. Um, I was really pleased to see on the list Curtis Blow, one of the early rap records when rap is still kind of figuring out what it's wanting to be. I was completely surprised to not see Sugar Hill Gang on the on the list. It's the body first, of work. What's that? It's body of work. Well, okay, yeah. maybe so, but that's probably what they're thinking. But we're only no, talking we're not talking about bodies. We're talking about 1980. And I know, but that's probably how they're looking at it though. That's that's maybe, what I'm saying. but I'm Still, Sugar Hill Gang broke rap in a way that nothing else did or could have. And how, I'm just surprised to have seen it not on the list. Okay, so was Rapper Still like a single and the album came out in 81? The album came out in 80. Okay, because, uh, you know, I'm not, my, my Sugar Hill Gang <laughs> chops are not cute. And, you know, is the, uh, how, you know, I've only heard maybe two songs from that record. And from what I... yeah. I think it's Rapper's Delight and a bunch of other stuff. Whereas sure. I think that Curtis, everything Curtis Blow does is incredible. And Curtis Blow produced a lot of great records, but also opened the door for a yep. lot of great people. And I think that, again, I think that they're making the mistake of judging this purely outside. I think they made a list of 1980 that they're not looking at completely in the mirror of 1980. And that's yeah. kind of the weird issue I have with some of it. Yeah. But, um, I think I think it's I just think it's based on that's a deeper record. Well, I'm not saying it should be either or. I, no, I think I, I think know. they both should be on the list. Yeah. I you mean know. I would I would put the Sugar Hill gang in before I put the U2 record in. But... <laughs> I'm with you on that. <laughs> um all right. Well, I think this is a topic we're going to have to finish at another time because this is a big 1980 was a huge year with a lot of important releases that came out. Uh, yeah. So we, we might revisit this at another time, but we do have a few folks that we need to talk about in the last uh, couple of minutes of our show. So we had four folks uh, this year, uh, this week that passed away that, um, I mean, really were major losses. We had Michael Nesmith of the Monkees. Steve Bronsky from Bronsky Beat, Robbie Shakespeare, uh, a reggae artist, and uh, somebody who not would not normally be uh, focused on in our show, author Ann Rice, who just died today. Um, but I, I do have a couple of uh, music stories about Ann that I, I want to share. So uh, let's start with Nesmith. Um, you know, I grew up, grew up on the monkeys. I think that uh, the earliest example of kind of like me gaining that sort of drive toward and love of performance came from the monkeys because here is, I mean, it's a silly sitcom, but here's a band 
that's you know they're just kids they're working on uh you know playing around and stuff like that but there was one episode that was basically filmed uh at, with the band on tour and most of it was like you know seeing them horse around behind you know on the bus or or backstage or whatever but there were some clips of them on stage performing and I remember there was a, a little clip of a, somebody from the press who was asking Michael about the rumors that the, that the monkeys don't play any instruments. Or, and Michael's like, I'm about to go out onto a stage in an arena in front of 10,000 people. If I don't know how to play my instruments, I'm in trouble, man. <laughs> <laughs> and so Michael was always the guy to me. Like he was just, he was the most solid dude. He in in ways that the others weren't he was a songwriter you know on their first album all the uh, music was put together by the producers of the al- of the series these are the songs you're going to sing and the 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 four musicians the four band members said they sort of teamed up and fought the producers to get one original song on the album and they picked one of michael's songs we want this song on the album. We want this song on the show. And they won and they got that song. So Michael was sort of a musical force in that band. I think, I think, you know, when I think of the monkeys, um, probably a decade after you, Alan, because, because of the age difference, you know, um, the Renaissance of the eighties really opened up the monkeys. I mean, I had heard them from my sister's records and things, but, um, it's interesting. They've had every decade. They have a. They've had a a, a rebirth in many yeah. ways, but I think I think with the monkeys, I think Torque was like the multi musicianist, do everything guy who yes. wasn't comfortable being a spokesman or being a front guy, and I think Nesmith was the guy that could write the songs, knew where they wanted them to go, and just is like, you know, take my hand and just follow me, mm-hmm. and I think that's kind of the way that that they worked. Yep, and um, I think the best. I think some of the best songs are the ones where you have the, the interplay between Torque and, and him as well. Yeah. Well, Torque's but, a hell of a musician. Yeah. Yeah. He wasn't, he wasn't the talented lead singer that the other guys were, but he was a, he was a really solid musician. And I think that's interesting that the monkeys, like they don't necessarily need one, you know, they've got so many different dynamics in that band. They don't need one. But I think that in terms of like, heart and soul of the band it's i think nesmith is the heart and soul of that band you know and just in terms of like he's the guy who took on the mantle of fighting off the stereotype of like we're not really a rock band and he just he's the guy's like this it's like i got this hold my beer he's kind of that guy so well john lennon loved the monkeys yeah and frank zappa loved the monkeys i mean it's so weird And of course, there's the famous story that, you know, uh, Jimi Hendrix, you know, one of his big breaks was opening for the Monkees, which that's a strange pairing if you've ever seen one. Nesmith heard him in a club and yeah. was like, I don't know what this is, but put him on there with us, man. He's going to yeah. be great. The couple things I think that are interesting about Nesmith, too, outside of the fact that his solo career is mm-hmm. astounding, he won the first video Grammy. Yeah, True. And I think that's cool. And then also, much like George Harrison, sort of said, "I'm going to tr- I'm going to go into a different thing," mm-hmm. and produced films because he produced um, Repo Man. He's a producer on Repo Man. He's got a cameo on Repo Man. He's in a movie called Tapeheads, which is just really weird. And you got him and Jello Biafra in the same movie. Um, so I think that you know his legacy is is really interesting in terms of like creating like these weird, goofy videos that he did, but also making these really great records and producing records. I thought that was really interesting as well. And laid the template for what became MTV. Yeah, I think that's huge too. Enormous. Yeah. Enormous. So I I don't know if it's just because I grew up much later than you guys or whether it's because I grew up in Britain. I mean, I mm. vaguely knew who the Monkeys were. I heard you know a number of their songs growing up particularly on some of my dad's 60s compilation tapes and CDs, um Daydream Believer at and I'm a believer, the believer songs. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I couldn't have named any of them until now. I mean, I, I think yeah. from everything I'm seeing and hearing about Naismith, I mean, it sounds like he was a phenomenal musician. Um, and I think the yeah. musical world will be a, a slightly poorer place without him. My, yeah. my friend Julie, who's on my other podcast, went and saw him back in October. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and she we were texting and she basically said i'm so glad i went to see that yeah, show. she was yeah. thinking about not going yeah that's yeah, kind I of the boat i was into him. yeah um and there were there were parts on that tour where he was not necessarily completely yeah at his game and dolan's did a really good job of bringing it back which i thought was good what can you tell us about steve bronsky so um steve bronsky formed a band called bronsky beat right yeah and what's interesting, um, you and I probably have completely different perspectives of how we came to Bronski Beat. But um, me growing up in the, in the Midwest, walking to a record store and hearing Small Town Boy, mm. I'm like, uh, this sounds incredible. And then hearing Why, and I'm like, this also sounds incredible. And then finding out, you know, Steve Bronski's like this kind of uh, the guy behind the band that sort of helps do the melodies and the music. And then Jimmy Somerville does the vocals and some of the songwriting and things. And... Um, really quickly like wow this is an interesting record it does a lot of interesting things and then you know i i'm i'm, I'm playing it, it's in my room and i'm playing it one day and my brother comes home from florida and he looks in my room closes the door looks in my room closes the door and he comes back he's like do you know what this is and i'm like yes bronski beat he goes no do you know what this is so then my brother sort of explained the whole like it's like well you listen to the lyrics you understand that but it doesn't he's like i'm just it's like i just don't care right yeah um but when when you watch the video for Small Town Boy, which everyone should probably go back and do, um, it makes the song that much more emotionally resonant. And um, there were other bands that you know featured prominently out performers in them, right? Yeah. Now, not in the same way that necessarily a Queen would, because that's a whole separate ball of wax. But in the '80s, when you have new wave and you're taking sort of this British new wave everywhere, right? Um, there, things like Culture Club and stuff are much more palatable for American clubs because you've already had Bronski sort of happen, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, agreed. And um, as the 80s grew on and you have the AIDS crisis, Bronski and Bronski kind of started bearing that flag a lot earlier than a lot of other people. Yeah. And he's one of the first musicians that sort of just said, we need to get our crap together as a music community and talk about this, mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting. But I think, you know, his legacy is more is more tied to, like, more than Nezeth, for example, more tied to activism and music. And I think that's that's interesting. But I also think that his sense for arrangements on, like, those Bronski Beat records are great. And then uh, Jimmy Somerville leaves Bronski Beat, right? And then they get a new guy, and they do Hit That Perfect Beat, which is in yeah. a really great film that no one likes called Letter to Brezhnev. Um <laughs> And uh, that becomes a huge hit. So they, they sort of reinvented themselves with a new singer and get chart success and have to completely fight off the communars at the same time who have their former lead singer that are just blowing up all over the place. And there's not this war of words in the press. There's not an animosity. It's not catty at all. It's like, hey, this is a step forward for everybody. And... I, you know, I, I remember him in an interview saying it wasn't always easy for him to look up and see, you know, his former lead singer in the charts doing better than he was, but he had to look at it in the broader terms of like any one of us that has a top hit record breaks down a barrier. And I just find that interesting. And, mm -hmm. um, but I, I can't really emphasize just how much Bronski beat had an effect on people when it got played in clubs because it mm -hmm. was just, Club culture always tended to be a little more open than regular culture, but there's a lot of people that heard Small Town Boy that had no idea what the cultural rep, uh, representation of it was. Yeah. You know, and that's an interesting place to be for a band. And I think, you know, his legacy is always going to kind of be like in that pioneer because you wouldn't get a Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And again, this is a good thing, bad thing too. There wouldn't be a Frankie Goes to Hollywood necessarily if there wasn't a Bronski beat, you know? Mm -hmm. Um you know, you'd still get a soft sell on some of those other things and the erasure in that. But um, a lot of this stuff that comes later in the mid-80s, Bronski, we kind of opened the door for that. Yeah. The next one we want to kind of talk about from this yeah. past week is Robbie Shakespeare. Rob, you got some stories about him, too. So, yeah, um, he's nominated for 13 Grammys. Um, Sly and Robbie were notorious for doing backing vocals on, like, Mick Jagger records, Joe Cocker records. Um uh, yeah. Grace, the, the Grace Jones records they sang back in book mm -hmm. yeah, and then he produced a lot of really other other records for other people, right? Kind of in the same way, he's kind he, he's out there producing all the records that now Rogers isn't, 
um, <laughs> pretty much. But he um, he also sort of helped move dancehall reggae into a thing. There wouldn't really be a Shaggy if there wasn't a, a Sly, you know, wouldn't mm. be a, a Sly and Robbie. That's so a good Sly, point. I hadn't thought about and, that. And Sly and Robbie kind of take um, soul and mix it with reggae in a commercial kind of way. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not necessarily the biggest um, Sly and Robbie person, but if you listen to just the Sly and Robbie greatest hits, that's probably all you really need yeah. unless you want to take a deeper dive. But his production at the time was just really interesting in how he was producing records, his attitude towards product, production, and then his his um, his ideas of black artists going to labels and saying, no, this is my cut. This is what this artist is getting. It's the same as mine. Um that that's also particularly of note but the 13 grammys is is the thing that when i read about it i'm like wow 13 grammys you know it's like this is way more prolific than just a, a you know joey reggae goes you know yeah. um and i think that's interesting in that they they put out a record on Elektra in the 90s that didn't really go anywhere but then the records he did produce later in the 90s ended up going all over the place so it, it's an interesting legacy for sly and robbie that i think um it's probably overlooked Okay, so the last one that I kind of want to talk about is uh, not a music figure. Um, Anne Rice, novelist, best known for Interview with the Vampire and uh, the, the whole series of Lestat novels. Um, she wrote some werewolf books, very, very gothy, very horror -y. Also delved into some Christian novels as well. Um, and kind of... the reason I want to bring this up is because those novels were hugely influential on musical artists. There are mm -hmm. so many things that are inspired by particularly the vampire novels. Um, and there's a couple of stories that I kind of want to share um, that I, I immediately thought of when I got the news this morning that Anne had passed. The first is um, one of my favorite bands, Heart who put out an album in 1980 that didn't make Rolling Stones list. Um, they wrote in 1990, uh, Ann and Nancy co-wrote a song with Sammy Hagar called The Night. And it's based on Ann's vampire novels. And it's such a great song. It's uh, this really sort of heavy, stompy kind of like song that really evokes that sort of like prowl through the night streets to find your next prey. So good. Um, I'm the drummer in a heart tribute band called Hardisons, and we play that song. And even people who have never heard it before and hear us play it for the first time, they love that song. I mean, it just resonates. It's so good. The other story I want to tell is um, there was a band in the 90s called October Project, which I absolutely love. And they only did two albums, and then they kind of split apart. And they're singer mary fall went on to record a bunch of solo albums and she is a huge ann rice fan so somebody played ann uh one of the october band or october project songs and said you should listen to this i think you'll really like this and the singer loves your book she's a she's a huge fan so she listened to it and loved it and she contacted mary uh, basically, Mary says she got an email out of the blue from Anne Rice saying how much she loved her and said something along the lines of, your voice is sort of that earthy, preternatural voice that I've been longing to hear. So when Anne was getting ready to, uh, she was working on uh, one of her um, werewolf books, the, the Wolves of Midwinter. She contacted Mary and said, I would really like for you to write a song to be sort of the theme song of this of this novel. And so Mary did. It's called Exiles. And it uh, it's sort of the it sort of gets used in pieces as incidental music on the audiobook of the of the novel with the entire with the full song playing at the end. And um, Mary Fall put out a little thing today about her about her uh, relationship with Anne that was really, really sweet and said, you know, you always hear stories about meeting your heroes can be a bad thing. And that was not the case with Anne. And, you know, just talked in such lovely terms about Anne. So 
being an inspiration for musicians, I wanted to get Anne in our show, but particularly I wanted to share those couple of things that, you know, were Anne related. Uh, Moon Over Bourbon Street. Yeah. G great Anne, great song related to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of things we can Much better it. than Fields of Gold. Oh, come on. <laughs> it is, but I mean, come on. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Anthony, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension podcast, watching our way through the entirety of Doctor Who from 1963 till now. We're currently messing around in the early 70s in the Pertwee era. Uh, you can find us at watchers4d.podbean.com or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Rob, how about you? Uh, you can find me on KDHX on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 Central. It also streams, and there's an archive stream, so you can listen to it uh, in the middle of the night if you need to fall asleep. And um, also needcoffee.com on their podcasts and uh, on their website, and then uh, anglotopia.net as well. Cool. Um, I've got a little publishing company called Cosmic Press where I write a bunch of dumb books and publish a couple of things by other art <laughs> by other authors too. Um, you can find my Star Trek podcast, uh, Earth Station Trek. It is on Podbean as well, as well as Spotify and other places where you can uh, find podcasts. And you can look for other episodes from Modern Musicology on YouTube. We've done a whole slew of shows over the past year or so. You can find our YouTube channel and take a look at a bunch of great content. So we will be back next week. Um, thank you guys for hanging out. All right, everybody have a good week. See you next time.